Very good. All's well that ends well. <laughs> All's well that doesn't even end well. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Oh, for those of you who might be wondering, that wasn't just a random creation of Pali poetry by a stray retreatant. <laughs> just looking to brighten up the evening. Was, uh, but um, uh, this is a traditional way that uh, Dhamma talks are invited. Um, part of the uh, the customs around Buddhist teachings are that they're, they're, uh, they're never um, foisted upon anybody. You, uh, it's a non-proselytizing religion. We're not allowed to go around and knock on people's doors or stop people in the street and introduce them to the, the real truth. <laughs> um, but there has to be a, uh, uh, an interest there first. Um, there has to be that spark of of inquiry uh, before the teachings are given. And so this uh, little verse that uh, Jaya uh, recited so beautifully, thank you very much, mm -hmm. uh, that um, this is a, a, a recounting of actually the invitation to the Buddha to teach um, in the first place because Shortly after the Enlightenment, um, yeah, you thought you might have been having a difficult day today, and think, "What am I doing here? Uh, this is all this is all a bit pointless." Um, well, the Buddha had a similar kind of experience. Shortly after the Enlightenment, he spent some time uh, uh, looking deeply into his mind and the, the realization that he had awakened to, and. Um, all of the, the years of practice and incredible austerity he'd been through, the effort that he'd applied over one lifetime, a hundred lifetimes, a thousand, a hundred thousand, uncountable lifetimes. And having arrived at uh, Anuttara Samasambodhi, um, uh, the complete and perfect um, self-awakening, uh, 
and then having sat under the uh, various uh, under the Bodhi tree and then under the different uh, trees in the uh, area beside the Niranjara River over those first few weeks, he was struck by the thought, no one is ever, ever going to understand this. There's no way I could possibly explain what I understand to anybody. There's no point in me trying to, to teach any of this, so uh, maybe I should just go off and, uh, and live alone and just have a, a quiet life as a hermit and not even attempt to try and, and convey this insight to anybody. So in the way of things, that, that, as that thought formed in his mind, um, and he thought, thinking, there's no point. This is, this is uh, obviously a waste of time. It will be, uh, the, the expression is, it will be wearisome uh, and troublesome for me to try and explain this. Vexa vexatious. It would be vexing, vexatious to try and explain this. And so um, he was inclined towards just living as a hermit and not, not to bother trying to teach anyone. And that thought uh, resonated through the, the cosmos and a Brahma god called Sahampati picked this up and thought, oh no, oh no, we've been waiting for so long for a Buddha to appear in the world. And this is a Brahma god, you know, not known for their impatience. Yeah. They are. A long, long lifespan. So we've been waiting so long for a Buddha to appear in the world. And now the, the, the mind of the newly awakened Buddha is inclined towards inaction, towards, being, uh, towards quietude and solitude, towards not teaching. So then the Brahma Sahampati beamed down from the, the upper heavens and appeared in front of the Buddha and then recited these same words, that, that, uh, or said these same words that Jaya just recited, saying, please... Um, it's true that uh, living beings are you know, confused and, and caught up in all kinds of uh, passions and aversions and, and views, but um, there are a few with only a little bit of dust in their eyes. And so for the sake of those few, please teach the Dhamma that you understand. And so that it's said uh, in the legends that then the Buddha used his uh, psychic powers to cast his vision around the world and... and uh, to see, yes, just uh, in, uh, as in any kind of natural system you have, um, like, and the, the analogy he uses is just, it's just like in a pond full of lotuses you have in red and blue and white lotuses, and some are born in the water and die in the water, some are born in the water and they grow to the surface, and some are born in the water and they rise above the surface and they blossom there. Or so too with living beings, there are some with coarse faculties and refined faculties, there are some with um, low uh, uh, regard for themselves and, and uh, some with, with high regard, uh, a, a high, a deeper understanding of themselves. There are those who are um, slow in wisdom and those who are quick in wisdom. And he said, well, and he realized, well, this Brahma was right, and so maybe uh, I'll, uh, I'll give it a try. So the fact that the Buddha had that, uh, that, um, Initiative awakened in him is the reason why IMS is here. <laughs> the reason why you're here, the reason why I'm here, uh, that two and a half thousand years later that that initiative is still resonating down through the, uh, the human realm and bringing its gifts. Um, the, the Buddha did have the skill and ability to, to teach and we're the, the glad, grateful inheritors of that, uh, of that effort, that skill that the Buddha applied. So that... Um, when uh, it's time for a Dhamma talk, even though it's scheduled on the, 
<laughs> on a piece of paper, you know, we, we still have this little ritual, this uh, form of, of requesting that, uh, um, calling the Dhamma forth, and uh, in a way inviting the Dhamma to appear as a response to the needs of the, the group and the time, the place, the situation, rather than, uh, I've already decided what you need, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, you know, in a proclamatory way, but more the Dhamma uh, really arises when there is that interest, that keenness, and uh, it arises as a response to, to that, uh, that, that need, that um, uh, potentiality within the, the group. Uh, today, um, it's always striking to me when a retreat begins, like this is a beautiful day today, uh, glorious spring weather here in Massachusetts. And, uh, but it might have been that during the course of the day you didn't feel totally glorious all of the time. <laughs> the mind gets caught up in, uh, in little, little or large uh, anxieties and fears, hopes, annoyances, distractions, opinions, discomforts in the body, discomforts in the, the mental world. And despite being in a perfect place, noble company, beautiful friends, uh, lovely environment, uh, IMS has been thoroughly gussied up. Everything's been made beautifully kind of renovated and everything works well. Tanchagananda has been through <laughs> a lot of the... Uh, uh, the, the building. He used to be on the, the uh, maintenance staff here, so he knows uh, all the, the windows that stick and the, the valves that, <laughs> that have got stripped threads on them. And so, you know, the, the place has really been spiffed up and, and uh, been brought into a very good state of, uh, of functioning. It, uh, it's thoroughly, it's got this aura of being thoroughly cared for and looked after and well tended. Even the little dark nooks and crannies down in the underworld below us. You know, Everything is well-ordered and well-cared for. Uh, the sun is shining, the blossom is out. You're here at last, and still. <laughs> it's paradise. How can, we, how can we not be happy? This is why the Buddha taught. <laughs> but, uh, because he saw, when he, just in the same way, when he was uh, a prince living in the palace, he had youth and strength and health and intelligence and good company and everything he needed and wanted. And still there's that capacity to be, uh, to be uh, stressed or miserable or lonely, uh, irritated, uh, you name it. You know, insert your own, <laughs> write in your own favored uh, uh, disappointment or annoyance, your own... Uh, unrequited longing. There's always something, and hence the, hence the Dhamma. This is the, 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 um, the reason for the arising of the Dhamma teaching as we received it, is because the Buddha recognized you can be in absolutely the most perfect place, have everything in your favor, and still there's this ache in the heart, there's this, uh, this sense of, of longing or uh, alienation, this feeling of, of lack of fulfillment or, or uh, con confinement. The heart is not free. Why is that? How come? And it's even worse when you've got nothing to blame it on. You know, I've been here in, in past times and it'd be, 
you know, icy rain lashing down and kind of gray skies and uh, several times I've been here with snow and kind of slush underfoot and plenty to grumble about. The English love to grumble about the weather. It's a, some of our great national pastimes. <laughs> but uh, so that then you can blame it on something or the, the, uh, the heating system making weird noises and, and yet uh, the more perfect it is, the more the heart, you know, the, the heart sort of hung, uh, hungers for something to blame. It looks, have you noticed that sort of seeking and uh, searching tendency? There must be something around here that I can pin it on. And have you noticed that when you finally find something to be irritated by, there's a feeling of relief? Mm-hmm. Ah, it's that bloke in the, <laughs> the third, the, on the third seat away from me. Yeah. If only he didn't shuffle like that, then I'd be happy. And, oh yes, my left knee, right, I was, I've got this problem with my knee. Isn't that amazing how we notice a problem and you go, oh, you've got a, a reason. <laughs> you've got something to blame it on. Well, this is what we call in Buddhist jargon, dukkha. Dukkha is a wonderful all-purpose word. There's no English word that quite uh, serves for it. Um, as usually translated as suffering, also it means unsatisfactoriness. Um, it's that feeling of that there is something wrong with the world, with the universe right now. A feeling of out of orderness. And even if we don't, the mind doesn't spell it out that way. It's a, it's a uh, an attitude of it shouldn't be this way. If it was only a bit different or very different, <laughs> then I'd be happy. This is a, so dukkha is a word you'll probably be hearing in many of the Dhamma talks and instructions if you're not familiar with it already. Um, but this is a, what the, the Buddha used. This is the, the symptom, if you like, the spiritual, the symptom of this primal spiritual malaise is dukkha. This is the, the, um, uh, the way it manifests in our, in our hearts, in our experience. That feeling of, of, uh, of wrongness of imbalance. And it's interesting to reflect on where the word comes from. The, the, the word, the, the um, prefix du means wrong or bad or, or inappropriate or painful. Um, just as su, its partner, means good or happy or pleasant. And the, and the second part of dukkha, the akka, uh, is the, the, the center of the wheel that the axle goes through. So dukkha literally is like the wheel is out of, our wheel is out of kilter. And uh, all of us have had that experience down at the supermarket or in the, the airport, I'm sure. When you, tr- you choose that trolley with the wonky wheel, <laughs> as you're pushing it along, it, it throws you into the, the, the cartons of, of orange juice, sorry. Steers you inexorably into that, you know, that, um, uh, that person, uh, going down the aisle at the airport and you have to kind of wrestle with this thing. This is dukkha. You know, the wheel is out of kilter. We're, we're, we're not in balance. We're not spinning, true. And so that that, uh, that feeling is uh, what we are encouraged to, uh, to look at directly, to notice that, to be aware of that, to bring the attention to that. And what happens, as we all know, is that the mind gets uh, doesn't actually notice that we're, we're suffering, and it blames um, 
the thing that we said last week that we're regretting, or the the possibility of something happening next next week that we're really excited about, or it's blaming the the twinge in the knee, or the person sitting next to us, or or the uh, the person um, who sits so damn perfectly right in front of us, you, you know, you know they're doing it to intimidate you. <laughs> they haven't shifted for the whole three quarters of an hour. I can't stand it. <laughs> I hate these perfect meditators. Yeah, and so that the mind um, blames or latches on or hopes for the external object. And so part of the, the essential uh, element of, of the practice is to turn the attention back and recognize, oh, it's not that person sitting perfectly straight. And even if they are trying to do it to intimidate me, that's their problem. <laughs> but it's, it's up to me whether I make uh, an issue out of it or not. Because what's happening here is this feeling of dukkha. There's a feeling of, of, uh, of pain, that dislocation in the heart. That's what's happening. This is dukkha. Too hot, too cold, too chilly, too stuffy. The food is too delicious. <laughs> the food is not delicious enough. Yeah, the food is just right. It's absolutely perfect. But will it be like that tomorrow? Can I find out what the recipe was? Yeah. Whatever it might be, uh, the, to, to see the, the, the mind going out to the object, whether it's a thought or a memory or a feeling or a hope or, a, or something we hear or smell or taste or touch. And to, to, to turn the attention back and to recognize, oh, what's happening here is dukkha. This is dukkha. Idang dukkang. This is dukkha. Well, that's, in a way, recognizing, oh, this is the symptom. This is what's happening. And, uh, and as anybody in the medical profession or being around it, you know, will know that getting the mind around the symptom uh, seeing what the symptom is and really understanding that then helps you to get to what the cause of the malaise is, helps you get to the, the root. So we don't bring our attention to dukkha because we want to make ourselves more miserable or that we're just uh, delighting in, in unhappiness. <laughs> but instead, it's just looking at the, the, the ailment that, that brings us here, that, that ache in the heart, that feeling of discontent or incompleteness. Okay, where, what is this? Where does it come from? Now, also during the course of the day, um, I'm sure it's been interesting, noticeable to us, how the, the flow of moods, also the first day of a retreat, is incredible how long it is, isn't it? How many hours can be packed into a day when you haven't got your, your, your whole system of of meetings to go to, or appointments to, you have to, to be there in time for, or the, or the you know, radio, or the iPod, or the TV, or the commute, or the uh, whatever it might be that fills up the day when it's just in the hall, out of the hall, stand up, sit down, walk around, <laughs> sit down again, uh, eat something, have a cup of tea, sit down again. It's just incredible how they, the hours sort of quadruple in length. Um, and particularly when, when we're sitting here in the hall or doing walking meditation and that because it's so plain and there's such a little uh, um, sort of emotionally impactful activity I mean you can get a bit, a bit excited about the apple blossom or <laughs> the, uh, the flower arrangements but you know it doesn't really serve to carry the attention away too far Just, uh, just walking for five minutes, and you can think, well, God, 
haven't they rung the bell yet? It's been at least an hour. Or sitting in the hall, you feel like, wow, I've been following the breath diligently. God, this is really great. I've been, I've been uh, sitting here for ages and ages. I've never stayed with the breath for so long. This is great. You take a look at your watch and go, huh? We're not even 10 minutes into the sitting. How can that be? What do they do to my clock? You know, my battery must be running down. But it's, it's just, um, particularly you know, as the years go by, the, the level of stimulation and, and uh, mental input uh, increases all the time. We have absolutely no opportunity to be bored now. Uh, that uh, We have uh, input coming in from, from all angles, all hours of the day and night. It's, it's very rare to have a conversation without at least one of us sort of pulling out an iPhone or a Blackberry or, a <laughs> or a, an iPad or taking a look at what's on the news or you know, looking up a quotation or <laughs> just checking and seeing what the volcano's doing. Just in a, there's a quiet moment between sentences. You know, there's just absolutely no opportunity for the mind to get, get bored. The, the level of, of input gets uh, more and more intense. Even if you think that you live a really quiet life, maybe some of you do, but still, this, the, for most of us, the general level of, of input increases year, day by day, year by year. So when the input stops and you come on a retreat and you're in noble silence and it's just sitting, walking, standing up, lying down, that the hours get proportionally longer. They feel longer because well, the feeling of time is in contradistinction to the way time is being filled up the rest of the, the year. Time is a perception colored by habituation. That's what it is. Long time, short time. It's totally dependent on how we perceive it. So during the, the flow of the day, uh, isn't it interesting how the, the moods change? Early in the morning, oh man, 5.30. This is ridiculous. And it's Saturday, it's the weekend. How are we expected to... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yada, 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 yada. <laughs> Grumbling in the dark, or maybe, wow, this is amazing. Oh, look at the shrine, all these people, these holy beings, this great sea of faith, I'm floating. Here we are, held up by this glorious wealth of the triple gem, carrying us all to Nibbana. <laughs> this is great. Wow, 10 days of this, amazing, incredible. And that's at 5.31. <laughs> you know, and it just gets better after that. So, so we can be the inspired yogi, pinpointed, riveted to nibbana forever and ever. We can be the, the, the grumbling complainer. Then breakfast comes, and then the mind can be very consumed, pun intended. <laughs> breakfast, time to eat, and latching on to all the, the glories of a, a breakfast at IMS. Or you might be thinking, they call this breakfast. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> how, can they, how can they do this to us? This is cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> or you might even, not, might even be so consumed with your thoughts you don't even notice breakfast. You sort of sit down, uh, and then next thing you know, you're staring at a, a plate with a few crumbs in it and an empty teacup, and you think, oh, I guess I must have... Um, just mindfully eating my breakfast. <laughs> Where did it go? Where was I? 
off on some other dream world. So during the course of the day, isn't it amazing how many different characters that we can, uh, we can be? The diligent yogi, the, uh, the grumbling complainer, uh, the, uh, the uh, excited and enthusiastic uh, chore doer, <laughs> polishing vigorously. We can be uh, remembering the past, lost in our thoughts of our childhood. We can be uh, the, um, the authoritative scholar, uh, finding all sorts of interesting comments to make about Buddhism and Buddhist teachings and uh, taking notes on, the, on what Taranir and myself are saying. We move from one, one entity to another. We get uh, born into these different characters in our mind, the, the child, the parent, the authority, the victim, the, uh, the follower, the leader, the, uh, the obedient person, the, the rebel, the rule keeper, the one who's punctual, the one who's never punctual, <laughs> feeling enthusiastic, feeling depressed, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. How many different uh, people, how many different personae do we, do we experience ourselves as during the course of the day? It's incredible. I, I, I find it so. It's incredible how many different people we are. And it's interesting, the word persona uh, comes from the, the Latin, well, it is a Latin, <laughs> uh, the, the Latin for uh, what the sound goes through. Per means through, sona is the sound. It means a mask. That's what the, it's like a, a mask that, that actors would wear in the theater. It's what the sound goes through. So our persona, the person, is what we, we function through. Uh, our mind, our, our being functions through that. So during the course of the day, there are all these personae that we, we feel ourselves to be. The, the enthusiast, the, the grumbler, the energetic one, the painful one. Uh, and the part of the task that uh, is before us is to, to recognize and to learn to listen to all those different voices that we hear during the course of the day. Whether when it's uh, the early morning or during the... the the daylight hours, or now in the evening, and then the night time, whether we're together with others or we're by ourselves. Just watching, listening to all these different characters coming into being. And uh, part of the, the Dhamma teachings that is uh, so central to this practice and central to uh, the liberation of the mind, freeing the heart from dukkha, that which enables our, our, the, our wheel, if you like, to, to run true, to spin true, is that recognizing that none of these voices, uh, none of these personae, are really and truly who and what we are. They're just the dramatis personae of, of our, uh, our world as we experience it at the moment. This particular pattern of conditioning, our own particular birth, our gender, our age, our education, our family, our decision to come here to this retreat, uh, all of it mixes together and produces this, this uh, collection of, of characters, these different voices that, that we hear the mind producing. I'm not encouraging a multiple personality disorder <laughs> as the, the way to liberation, but more just listening to and, and learning from 
the different moods and recognize, oh, listen to that one. Here's the enthusiastic yogi. Here's the inspired uh, devotee. Here's the, um, the, the inner critic. Here's the one that's judging this person to be the worst yogi in the whole room. Yeah. Sure, absolutely certain that you know, I am really the worst meditator. <laughs> this listening, oh, that's a voice. That's a, a sound of a criticism. That's a judgment. It arises, it ceases. There's the, uh, you know, the faithful friend. It arises and ceases. There's the caring parent. It arises and ceases. The caring offspring, the, uh, the, uh, the devoted child. Arises and ceases. Being a yogi, being a teacher, being a monastic, being a layperson, these are perceptions that arise and cease. They come into being, they do their thing, they fade away. They're all just masks that we pick up and uh, are spoken through and then we put them down. And the dukkha comes uh, from, well, it comes from many places, but one of the, the key areas that dukkha comes from is the believing these different individual voices are, are truly who and what we are, that the, the inner critic is actually telling the truth. <laughs> I, really, I really am the most useless meditator here. It's true. I can prove it. You know, I've got witnesses. I can tell you exactly what's going through my mind. I'll prove it to you. That my mind is, uh, is absolutely unredeemable, completely useless. That too is just another voice that we hear. So that developing mindfulness, learning to, uh, to really watch the mind, listen to the mind, involves this, uh, a kind of restraining, a, a reticence to buy into the content of what all those thoughts are, and judgments are saying. Praising, criticizing, making comments, loving, hating, or just uh, cheerfully bumbling along doesn't have to be anything extreme, just sort of the murmur of, of commentary. Like, oh, I like this. This is interesting. Oh, I don't like that. Why do they choose that color? Mm. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder, maybe, what about just to listen? Say, so, oh, that's just the, the, the mumbling mind filling space. That's all. Another expression that's used for, the, um, for this is the, the inner committee. It's wonderful. I don't know who originally came up with that expression, but it, it, uh, it serves very, very well. And uh, we, it's rather like you know, listening to the mind and watching what the mind does in the different phases during the day or different times of the retreat. It's rather like being at a committee meeting and you have you know, the, the domineering one who believes that the, the right decision will be determined by who shouts loudest, who looks most grumpy, <laughs> yeah, who's got the most money, who carries the most clout, yeah. who can quote the most Pali suttas, <laughs> who's got the strongest uh, opinions. And there's the, the quiet ones, there's the intelligent ones, there's the thoughtful ones. Well, uh, the, um, the, the art of, of listening to the inner committee is to let wisdom be the facilitator, to have the chair, to be the, um, the con convener of the, uh, and the... Uh, facilitator of the meeting rather than taking sides with any one of the particular voices but just to be able to to be like uh, the uh, a chair in the meeting that says hmm interesting <laughs> thank you for that opinion um, I wonder how everyone else feels about that or oh so and so you haven't spoken yet have you got any any views on this matter 
So that is putting mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, into the, the, the role of the central, uh, central figure of the, of the committee. Just as a committee needs a, a facilitator or a chair, letting that quality of mindfulness and wisdom, that which is attending, uh, receiving all the, the, the noises of, the, the, of the, the different participants, whether they're intelligent and helpful, well-informed, whether they're just grumbling and complaining, whether they are shouting loudly, whether they're infantile, just to listen. So, okay, well, thank you for sharing <laughs> the, the voices of, uh, of all different shades and, and forms, different tones, to listen. And to not, you're not trying to suppress all the voices of, of greed and fear or aversion, anger, but we're not necessarily believing them either. It's just like if, if you have a, a, a child, and, and the, uh, just like when I was a little kid, you say, I want to drive, I want to drive. And you know, when you're three or four years old, and so my dad would say, okay, and he'd take the keys out of the ignition, <laughs> and then he'd put me in the driving seat. Okay, you can drive. <laughs> so if the three-year-old wants to drive, the thing to do is take the keys out. <laughs> And the, the, so it, when the three-year-old wants to drive your meditation practice, or the way that you're relating to the person sitting next to you in the dining hall, how dare she? That's not fair. I wanted that. She knows this is my place. Yeah, Take the keys out of the ignition. <laughs> Don't write that note. <laughs> Pin it on the board, because it's like putting the three-year-old in, in, in the driving seat of your car. It's like, fine, you can play, but you can't, you can't have a, a go with the engine running and making the pedals work. Only more suffering will ensue. So I would encourage, as the, the days unfold and we spend time together, to cultivate this quality of inner listening, listening to the, to the, the thoughts and feelings and moods the, the inner committee, as it carries out its deliberations and uh, makes its judgments during the day, and to develop that quality of being the, the skillful chairperson, the skillful facilitator that, that listens, that says, is respectful, caring, thank you for sharing, <laughs> duly noted, uh, and just letting the, the, the decision or the direction coming from the committee come from that place of wisdom a place of attentive mindfulness. Now what uh, causes uh, us to get um, distracted or, or to, you know, the, the causes uh, for that wheel going out of kilter, what causes our heart to get lost in states of, of dukkha, dissatisfaction, alienation, is often because we don't we're not in that place of listening and, and open, uh, unbiased attention. But we are believing in the different thoughts. We, we, uh, uh, we are carried away by different chains of thinking, by different moods. We, we are, uh, say, buying into and being born into a different persona, different perceptions, different events of the day, different ideas or memories crop up. And then we are, t we are drawn in by them. We believe that they're telling the truth. They're interesting. They're valid. And we hop on and you know, off we go. And next thing we know that we're, we're, we're in that state of wanting something that we haven't got, being stuck with something that we don't want, 
uh, all the different aspects and qualities of, of dukkha. So one of the most helpful things in, in uh, the process of meditation and truly freeing the heart is to recognize how that process of distraction works. What, what are, is the chemistry? What are the, what's the mechanics of distraction? Because it does have particular patterns and, and forms that it works in. There's a very uh, uh, wonderful and essential teaching of the Buddha on this um, that comes in a, a discourse in the middle-length um, teachings, the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, it's called the Madhu Pindika Sutta, the, uh, the discourse on the, the sweet morsel. Madhu is honey, uh, and Pindika is like a, a, a ball or a morsel of food. So it literally means it's like the sweet morsel of the honey ball sutta. And uh, it starts off with the Buddha sitting in the forest, just meditating by himself. And um, during that, that era, as still happens today in India, one of the forms of, of um, uh, one of the aspects of spiritual life and also one of the forms of public entertainment was spiritual debate. And that uh, even today you have people like, you know, when you have a, uh, like here in the West, you have a wedding party, you might have a you know, disc jockey come along and play the music, or you might have a comedian to come come along and sort of entertain people for the show. In India, they would invite two philosophers or two religious seekers to come along and have a debate. And that would be like the disco you know, after the wedding. It would be this kind of group entertainment, have a good philosophical sparring match. And so um, there was, and many, many times in the suttas, you hear this, you know, people coming to the Buddha and engaging him in debate, and there's a, all sorts of aspects to the sort of rules and style and forms these debates would take. So you know, the Buddha's sitting there under a tree in, the, in this forest, and then along comes a Brahmin um, philosopher, and uh, his name is Dandapani, which means, literally means stick in hand, and he's a sort of young, uh, uh, a kind of bright young Brahmin about town. <laughs> and uh, so he's, he's coming along through the forest, sort of walking along, swaggering along with his walking stick, and, and uh, he sees the Buddha sitting under a tree and thinks, aha, it's that, uh, it's that wanderer Gotama, uh, he's supposed to be very famous. I'll, uh, I'll engage him in debate and I'll um, prove him utterly wrong and mistaken and uh, I'll uh, uh, score points you know, by uh, having bested him in, the, in a philosophical argument. And uh, he draws close and then he engages the Buddha and, and the Buddha you know, s- s- uh, opens his eyes and says, uh, after the greetings are, are done, then the, uh, the Brahmin sort of launches into his, his opening gambit and says, So, uh, wanderer, um, what kind of philosophy do you espouse? What kind of teaching do you follow? And the Buddha said, seeing, you know, because he was a pretty good reader of character and could, <laughs> could tell where this guy was coming from, that he, he wasn't particularly interested in truth. He just wanted an argument that he hoped he could win. And so the Buddha said, I espouse such a doctrine. I follow such a doctrine that... Uh, is based upon, uh, espouses non-contention with anyone in the world. <laughs> so that, then it said that the, uh, the, uh, the brow of the Brahmin Dandapani furrowed into three lines. He sort of wagged his head from side to side, clicked his tongue, and having nothing whatsoever that he could say, he, uh, he, took, his t- he took his stick and went swaggering off into the forest. Yeah, confuted and, and frustrated. So when the Buddha got back to the monastery and uh, he recounted this incident to the, the community there, he said, uh, this is what is the cause. It, it's, 
it's contention. Uh, uh, this is uh, the cause of all the, the quarrels and, uh, and fights and arguments between people. And, this con and contention fundamentally comes from the uh, attachment to experience. That's what the, the cause is, is through blindly following our perceptions and our experiences. That's what the cause of all argument and quarrel, the taking up of clubs and sticks and all arguments and, and fights and, and warfare, all brawling and disputing and contending. And then he went off and, uh, and uh, left the others there and uh, went to, to be by himself in his, in his hut, in his kuti. So they, uh, then the, the, the mutterings started. What does he mean by you know, all, all quarrels, all warfare, all argument starts with, with believing in our perceptions or following our experiences? So then Mahakachana uh, was well known for the one who could explain at length cryptic statements of the Buddha. That which is said by the Buddha in brief could be explained at length by Mahakachana. So there's, they're trying to figure out what the Buddha meant. They can't come to any conclusions, so they go off. Let's ask Mahakachana. So they track him down and go and talk to him. And then it's Mahakachana who makes this, this very helpful analysis. And he says, well, this is, this is what he's talking about, and this is how it works. Well, when we perceive something, say the eye perceives light, then the, uh, the, the, the sense organ and the object coming together, and then the consciousness that arises at the eye, this is called contact. Eye contact, so there's light, the eye, and then eye consciousness, the, if you like, the the, the, uh, the uh, nerve impulse, the action potential zooming down the optic nerve into the brain, eye consciousness, until the, eye, uh, the, the visual uh, as, uh, the visual part of the, the visual cortex of the brain is stimulated. So that's called contact, the organ, the, the object, and then eye consciousness coming together. So when there is contact, that gives rise to feeling feeling pleasant, feeling painful, feeling neutral. So that there's an initial sort of raw uh, um, perceptual sensory impact. Now that very quickly then gets registered um, as a, a, a form of perception. We name it. There's what's called sanya. And the word sanya in Pali is related to the English word sign, like designation, um, so, uh, uh, signature, and that kind of thing. A sanya is the naming of what's there. So then the eye sees a form, this is, and so that then it registers white or green, you know, dark brown or light brown. So that sanya is a, is, uh, is a non-verbal recognition of that particular sense object. So there's a, there's a contact, feeling, perception. And then the, the um, swiftly following on after the perception, there is thinking. The, the um, conceptual mind steps in and says, uh, white flower, big daisy, uh, meditation bell, uh, nice woodwork. <laughs> so it's, a, it's the, the, the raw conceptual uh, form that goes along with that perception. Now, uh, thinking on its own is a very simple process. Uh, it's not burdensome or difficult, but the problems begin because vitaka, or thought, the thinking, very quickly leads to conceptual proliferation. This is another one of these um, Pali terms that doesn't have a perfect uh, rendition in English, but this is, the Pali is papancha. Papancha, this is a wonderfully alliterative term. 
And papancha means that whole stream of, of thinking uh, that arises based on that initial thought when you say uh, white, uh, big white daisy. So then papancha is like, now I wonder what kind of name that's got, because you can't really call it a daisy. I mean, it is a daisy, but it's kind of really a big one. I'm sure it's got its own special name. And I really should have studied more about flowers. My sister's a gardener. My mother was a gardener too. And, oh, she died about seven years ago. Oh, oh yeah, but my sister keeps a garden going on her grave. That's very beautiful. <laughs> the mind launches into a whole story, a poignant story or an excited story or a painful story. Papancha, conceptual proliferation. And then, uh, the more that papancha uh, develops and runs, uh, and runs along, then it, it reaches its full flourishing, uh, full agonizing flourishing in what's called papancha sanya sankara, just to complete the Pali lesson for the evening. Mm-hmm. And this is the uh, multiplicity of perceptions and notions that beset the heart, is the rendition for that. So it's that feeling of me in here, the world out there, and that quality of alienation, that the world is either promising something that I haven't got or it's got something that is oppressing me. Um, but that's uh, the, when the, the train of papancha, that train of thought and feeling is, is followed uh, heedlessly through, that's what causes the sense of, of alienation, me here and the other out there, and thus causing um, uh, fear and hope, uh, aversion, irritation, and the basis of conflict. So then... Uh, Mahakachana explained, this is what the Buddha meant when he said, this is why uh, the following of perceptions uh, leads to contention, to brawling, wrangling, disputing, to the taking up of arms and weapons, to, to warfare. And it's through the understanding that process and learning not to follow it that we come to the end of all, uh, of all contending, all quarreling, all disputing, the end of taking up weapons and, and uh, contention. So this is a very helpful little process to, to reflect on and understand. And we can use it very directly to help um, working with listening to, to the mind, to establishing mindfulness and wisdom. Because the more we understand how distraction works and the more we can uh, disentangle the heart from that. But one of the practices that I, I like in, in, in this respect, because uh, it's not just a matter of, of say, memorizing the sequence of, okay, contact, feeling, perception, thinking, conceptual proliferation, and then the um, uh, alienation and uh, multiplicity of perceptions and notions. But you're learning to, to, to recognize that process as it works, to keep, to keep track of that. And also, we, what we find is we can learn to, to unravel it, just like a... a um, uh, a ball of string getting, getting rolled up and knotted, we can, we can let it unravel as well. Uh, a number of years ago, Joseph Goldstein passed, uh, passed on a, a book to me that was um, a book of teachings of a, a Korean master, actually. Um, and I forget, uh, to my embarrassment, the name of the great Korean teacher. <laughs> but the book was called Tracing Back the Radiance. It was a collection of his teachings. And Joseph uh, gave me this book thinking, this sounds really like what you teach. I think you'd really enjoy it. And sure enough, it was. And this expression, tracing back the radiance, is describing exactly the methodology for when you find yourself out sort of um, in the middle of some kind of uh, unrequited love, a, 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 an irritation with some, some person out there, with rec- uh, reminiscing about the past or hoping or fearing for the future, that 
or the mind lost in some kind of distraction, some kind of um, opinion or fear or hope, that uh, we can trace the, the, the energy of that, we can trace the quality of that back to where it came from. So say, for example, um, maybe um, during the afternoon you catch a, you, you, you catch a whiff of lavender, think, do I smell lavender? And then next thing you think, oh, that reminds me of those wonderful lavender fields in Provence. I really ought to go back to France again. That was such a great holiday. Wow, but I was only 19 then, and I, you know, <laughs> 53 now. And, well, I wonder if it's still the same. And Well, you know, I've wasted my, I mean, it was really great when I was 19, but if I went back, you know, it would be such a waste of time because it would all be different. And, and isn't it sad how everything changes and, and, well, you know, I'm really in the second half of my life now, and yeah, it's all gone, it's all falling apart, and it's actually actually been a total waste of time, really. My life is a complete sort of disaster area and garbage dump combined, you know. <laughs> so then, there you are, having this, this whole sort of uh, ruminant diatribe against yourself. You think, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so here I'm, I'm regretting everything that I've ever done, and that my life is wasted because I'm now 53. And so some of you might be thinking, you're only 53. Well, <laughs> you can't complain. <laughs> so, but then, okay, there's that feeling. So then uh, that, that arose because of thinking, well, that holiday in France was so many years ago. And the, the thought of France were, was brought up because of the scent of lavender. It all began with just that moment where I, where I thought, do I smell lavender? So you traced it back to one little sense perception, and that's where it began. That's the, the root, was just that contact, nose contact. <laughs> then there was the, the, uh, the perception, and the, the, there was the contact, there was the feeling. Oh, pleasant. Then, then the, 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 the olfactory, region of the brain recognizing that, then the, the, the vitaka, the thinking coming in saying, lavender. And then that thought giving rise to, that reminds me of France, those beautiful lavender fields. This is the, the vitaka launching into Papancha, and then off it goes. So following it back and recognizing, oh, look, the further you go back to the root, the simpler and easier and more spacious it is. When it goes out to its extreme, it gets... Cons uh, increasingly more cramped, painful, and alienated. When we get back to the simplicity of, of just the, the raw experience, just the smell, the feeling, the sight, the sound, is extraordinarily uh, straightforward, innocent, pure. There's no sense of alienation. There's no sense of I around it. There's no sense of other. It's not me here in the world out there. It's just smell, sight, form, sound. There's a, a perfect innocence, a simplicity that's there just with the, the raw sense world. So it was interesting that indeed this, um, uh, in this Korean teaching, it, it described exactly that process of that we can do, we can recognize. So when you are uh, following through the, 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 the practice, you know, engaging in the, the meditation practice with the walking periods of sitting meditation, also, during the, the activity of the day, when you're just going from A to B, when you're doing the dishes or lying down to sleep at night, whatever the, the circumstance might be, as you see the mind launching down these different 
distract, uh, pathways of distraction, and then to to just consider, okay, now how did I get out here? It's like coming to surrounded by broken glass. Like, how did I get here? <laughs> and then just seeing if you can follow it through, just bit by bit, and uh, and it also obviously sometimes you know you've been so far down a a, 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 a uh, a track of distraction. It, it was you know, an hour and a half ago that the original <laughs> sense contact happened. But uh, the more you develop this, the more you're able to catch things quicker and, and find things quicker. And just to, to follow that through and seeing whether your, the mind is filled with excitement or filled with, with uh, irritation or just filled with uh, uh, nostalgia, to just see if you can follow that through, the, the chain of thoughts and associations, following it back, and see uh, what was the initial trigger. Was it just a, a random thought, a memory? Was there uh, just did it just pop into your mind? Was it the, the, the color of somebody's shawl? Just the feeling of the foot touching the ground? What was it? And then, as you trace it back, and, and uh, when you can find that some just original sense contact or a, just a random thought or mood, the feeling arising, just. Do, and see if you can stay with that, that, uh, that remembered experience. Just uh, bring their mind to that and to acknowledge, to, to really allow in how perfectly pure and simple that is, how easy that is. It's just a sound. It's just a thought. It's just a smell. <sighs> and to, tru- to let yourself truly acknowledge and know that the spaciousness, the, the ease that there is with that simplicity of just the mind knowing the sense world. And uh, just without creating a whole story about that, just to allow that simplicity, that purity to, to be known. Then that in itself will informs us. It makes it much, you know, we don't have to write a big essay or a poem about it. <laughs> but that in itself, that, the, that absence of dukkha, that's there. And it's interesting that it even works with a painful feeling, like a poignant memory, like, uh, or a, a, a sad feeling, even or a pain in the body. It's, oh yeah, it's just that, that twinge in my knee. That's where it started from. When you trace it back, it's still a pain, or that uh, there was something that, that was a, 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 a sad memory, a feeling of loss, suddenly pops up. Suddenly, you, you know, just a memory of your, of your deceased parent or your partner just pops up out of nowhere. It's still sad, it's still painful, there's still a bitterness there. But when we, we just allow the mind to fully know that, that feeling, that simplicity, that innocence, that purity is right there. So even though it's painful, it's also, uh, there's no limitation there. There's no... Um, uh, there's no dukkha involved in that. It's painful, but it's absolutely not a problem. In that moment, the, the universe is seen as being perfectly in order. There's nothing out of kilter. So these are a few themes to reflect on for this evening. And uh, so um, uh, another of the, the aspects of Buddhist teaching are that uh, probably many of you are familiar with, but those of you who are not, uh, I'd like to stress that all the teachings that, that we offer, these are, even though they've been technically invited, <laughs> uh, they're still not being put forth as, this is the absolute truth and you should believe it. Uh, 
but more they're, they're offered in the spirit of, well, here are some perspectives as, as I see them, or as Taranir or Ajahn Puna when he gets here. Um, whatever is useful, please take that and apply it. Whatever is, is not useful, then please just leave it aside. And so it's, and that's always the spirit that Buddhist teachings are, are presented, are, are offered in, that it's, uh, it's not being, you're not being told this is true and you should believe it, but there's an invitation to take that in, to see how it applies. Does it work? Does this have any relevance or is this applicable to your own life? And then what is applicable, what's helpful and useful, put it to work and, and employ it and use it. And whatever is not helpful or just downright wrong, then just leave it aside. I offer these thoughts for consideration. Andamayam Dhammakataya Sadhukaram Dhamma Se Sadhukaram